invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through, I believe it's 35, and um, this brings us to a day in the life of Jesus, which was very important, his resurrection day, day when he rose from the grave, specifically the part of the day in which he joined two disciples on their journey from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And this chapter begins by mentioning to us that a group of women had visited the tomb and were bringing spices they'd prepared for Jesus' body, but they find the tomb empty. And his disciples, when they hear the tomb is empty, come and check it out too, but no one has seen Jesus, just the empty tomb. And even though the angels have announced to the women that Jesus has risen... And even though both scripture and Jesus himself predicted he would rise, none of them even think about the resurrection as a possibility, even though they see the empty tomb. They're just downcast and disheartened by what's happened in the past week with all Jesus' suffering. And so the story before us is of two disciples in particular who are downcast. Uh, One's name is Cleopas, and the other's name we don't know. It's quite possible that it's Cleopas' wife. We're not sure, but they are not members of the group of 12 disciples, but disciples from the broader group. That's where our story picks up. So let's hear the word of the Lord, Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain women, uh, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. 
and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. There ends our reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this account of this moment in Jesus' life where he walked alongside these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We pray, Father, that you would now teach us from your word by your spirit. Open our hearts to learn. Grant clarity to your servant to speak. And Father, build our faith and increase our knowledge of your love for us and how it is you make yourself known to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, have you ever had it where you've been really disappointed, really let down by someone who was close to you, someone you trusted a lot? You had high expectations of someone and that person fell short. They fell far short of what you were expecting and hoping for, and your hopes are shattered. Maybe even you felt let down by God, and you've had this overwhelming sense of sadness grip you, and you're filled with doubts, disillusionment, and despair. That's how these two disciples on the road to Emmaus feel. They're not just slightly disappointed and had a bad day. They feel dejected, demoralized. They have been let down in a big way by a big figure, you could say, in their lives. Jesus himself, their rabbi, their master, the man who claimed to be Messiah, the one who they came to believe was Messiah, has let them down. He's dead. He's buried. And so are their hopes. And now these two disciples are walking from the holy city of Jerusalem, overcome by this profound sense of despair. And in our passage, we see how the risen Jesus reveals himself to these two dejected disciples, lifting their spirits and filling their hearts with hope. I want to consider how Jesus reveals himself, first by walking the journey with them, and secondly, by explaining the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures to them. And third, by breaking the bread for them. So first of all, Jesus reveals himself by traveling the road with them. These two disciples have been in Jerusalem over the course of the past week. They've come to know who Jesus is through hearing about his ministry for the past three years. And they realize he's proved to be a powerful teacher and miracle worker and healer. They've probably seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey at the beginning of the week. And their expectations are high. As are all the, the Jews' expectations throughout the city. The city of Jerusalem is astir as Jesus rides in. Seismic waves of excitement surge through the crowds. They expect Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman rulers. 
reduce their taxes, remove the corrupt Jewish leaders, replace them with the 12 disciples as Jesus' cabinet ministers while he sits on the throne and rules. But does anything like that happen? No. Everything but that happens. The exact opposite of that happens. He's betrayed by one of the twelve. He's arrested and falsely accused. He's condemned. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's crucified. And he's entombed. These disciples, verse 17 tells us, are sad. They're sullen. They're gloomy. Their faith is at an all-time low. So low that they have lost faith in Jesus as Messiah. Look at verse 21. They say to the stranger who appears to them, We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping, but not anymore. Their tomb is empty, yes, they know that. The angels have announced Jesus is alive. They're aware it's the third day since he died. But yet, they haven't seen the risen Jesus, and their faith is such, at such a low, they don't even recall the reality of the promise of the resurrection. They don't even think of it as a possibility. Their hope has died as Jesus died. Their hope was buried as Jesus was buried. And with heavy hearts, they travel away from Jerusalem to Emmaus. With these heavy hearts, while they walk... Reflecting on what's happened, a stranger sidles up alongside them and travels with them. They have no idea who this person is. Verse 16 tells us their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So this is more than just their ignorance. It's more than just they don't recognize Jesus because of his glorified body. There's a divinely imposed restraint preventing them from recognizing him at this point in time. But why is it significant that Jesus joins these two disciples as they journey to Emmaus and travels with them? It's probably going to take them a few hours. Why does he do that? Journey with them. Well, Jesus is a master evangelist and he sets somewhat of an example here for us. He knows better than anyone else what's happened in the past week. He knows exactly what these two disciples are thinking. And yet, what does Jesus do? He comes alongside them, walks the journey with them, and listens to them. He draws them out. He asks them questions and takes an interest in where they're at. He actually says to them, why are you so sad? He already knows, but why are you so sad? They're like, "Uh, haven't you read... Like, haven't you been in Jerusalem? Like, are you a stranger or something? I mean, front page headlines have been full of how this Messiah suffered and died and was rejected by the Jews. But no, Jesus takes an interest in them, asks them questions. And verse 19, he says, well, what things happened? And gets them to share where their heart is at, their disappointments, their disillusionment. In so doing, Jesus is really exemplifying the wisdom of Proverbs 18, verse 13. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. He's listening before speaking into their lives. He's also showing himself to be the merciful and faithful high priest that Hebrews 2, 18 speaks of. He's a priest who sympathizes with the weaknesses of his people. 
and walks alongside them and lets them express their doubts and their heartache and despair. And there's a lesson for us here as we minister to others. It's often easy for us who know the truth and who know how to live and how to think, it's easy for us to right away start speaking into someone's life when they don't know better and rebuke them or tell them what to do or tell them what to believe. Because, well, we know and they don't. But Jesus is so gracious. He comes alongside these disciples and journeys with them, gives them company in their doubts and afflictions, and lends a listening ear before speaking. And he doesn't hurry them. He knows process is important. He knows that people need time and space to work through their doubts and disappointments and the difficult things in their life. It's been said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And Jesus' approach here evidences the truth of that. If people don't know that they are loved by us and that we care for them, they're not going to take our words in the same way as if we first listened to them and shown love by wanting to know where they're at. And if we need to speak a word of rebuke to them, it won't carry near the weight if we haven't shown a listening ear first. A second lesson we can learn here from these disciples' disillusionment is that we need to know all of the scriptures. The reason these two disciples are so downcast, and the reason all the disciples are so downcast, is because they read their Bibles selectively. They loved passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 10, which talk about how the Lord will dash his enemies to pieces and judge the nations and crush the wicked rulers of the earth. But passages like Isaiah 53 about the suffering of the Messiah or Psalm 22, which we sang, don't seem to really have factored into their minds. It seems like they focused on just the passages about the powerful rule of the Messiah who would defeat his enemies. And there's a danger for us too, that we can focus in the Bible just on the passages that are easy to read. Passages like, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He will have wealth and riches in his house. Or blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. It will be happy. You will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine and your children like olive shoots. And then we don't read about the difficult passages about how Satan will attack us. How the world will attack us. How there's a cost to discipleship. If we don't read the whole Bible and read about the difficulties of the Christian life then we can get discouraged and think God's abandoning us when those difficult times come. And we will get discouraged. So we need to read the whole Bible. And then we know there is struggle in the Christian life, but our God will walk with us in those struggles. And then we aren't so quick to become discouraged. Well, after traveling with these disciples for a while and listening to their pain and getting to know where they're at and how they're thinking, then Jesus begins talking. Point two, he begins explaining the scriptures to them. Verse 25 tells us that he begins with a rebuke. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now Jesus isn't saying, ah, you fools, in a derogatory way. No, this might sound harsh to our overly, overly polite Canadian ears, but Jesus has developed enough relational capital with these disciples that they will receive a word of rebuke and 
The word Jesus is using is, again, not derogatory, but it's, you know, a good parallel in modern English is perhaps, oh, you clueless ones, oh, you of little understanding. And his tone is not unkind. He is there with love to call them to faith. He's saying you should know better. And then he says in verse 26, this rhetorical question, didn't these things have to happen to the Messiah and then he would enter his glory? And the answer is, of course these things had to happen first. The whole Old Testament predicted the Messiah would have to suffer. And then this stranger launches into a master's seminary class while walking down the road. Beginning, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The phrase beginning at Moses and all the prophets is just a Jewish way of saying beginning with the first five books of the Bible and moving all the way through to the last prophet Malachi. In other words, the textbook this stranger is using for his teaching is the whole Old Testament. And he's now going to show these disciples how all the events of this past week that seem so tragic have been all prophesied ahead of time. What passages did this stranger turn to? We don't know exactly which ones he turned to. Obviously, he didn't touch upon every single one of them because the journey was only a few hours and Old Testament is much longer than that would have time for. But we do know that Jesus gave an interpretive sampling from the whole Old Testament because it says all the scriptures. Where did he start? Perhaps Jesus turned to the first gospel promise in the Bible to show that he is the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. It's precisely what the Apostle Paul does in Galatians 3.16. He says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Paul is explaining that this promise to Abraham is an extension or expansion of the promise made about the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and that Jesus is that seed. And then Jesus would have likely gone on to explain how, look it, in this prophecy already now, it's stated that the serpent will bruise or will snap at the heel of this Messiah, this seed of the woman. Right in this first gospel promise, suffering is predicted. The serpent will snap at the Messiah's heel. Maybe Jesus talked about people in the Old Testament like Joseph and events, people and events that are typological of Jesus' life. How Joseph went down to the depths of the earth in a pit by suffering and then in prison and suffering before being raised up to rule from the palace. And how that is a picture of Jesus humbling himself, coming down to earth, going down into the tomb before being exalted in glory. It's also hard not to imagine that Jesus would have avoided referencing Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. You can imagine Jesus talking about the Passover lamb and how there's three qualifications. It had to be a male. It had to be at the prime of life. And it had to be without defect. And pointing to how he is a male without defect and offered himself in the prime of life. And that would have rung in the disciples' minds because John the Baptist had said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he saw Jesus approaching. Or 
think of Paul who says, For indeed, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Maybe Jesus turned to Numbers 21. Remember the bronze snake? The Israelites were grumbling and complaining as they had a reputation for in the wilderness. And God sent venomous snakes to bite them. And they started dying and they cried out to Moses. And God said to Moses, well, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And tell the people to look at it. And whoever looks at that serpent in faith will be saved. And maybe Jesus says, I am that serpent. I am the cursed one when I hung on the cross. John 3, 14 to 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, because he became a curse for them. Surely, Jesus also turned to the Psalms. The verse 24, uh, 44 of our passage tells us that. And what Psalms did Jesus turn to? We don't know exactly, but you look at Psalms like Psalm 41 verse 9 or 55 verse 12. It talks about how the one who shared my bread has lifted his heel up against me. Oh, bells would probably click. That's Judas prophesied in the Old Testament. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. Psalm 55. If a foe raised himself against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. Then maybe Psalm 22, Jesus walked through that. And as he mentions the mockery and the insults and the dividing of garments and casting of lots and the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Surely these disciples' uh, eyes are beginning to open. And they're starting to make connections between these psalms that they've skipped over and the events of the past week. And their hearts begin to warm. And their confusion begins to melt. Maybe Jesus talked about Psalm 16, verse 10, where the resurrection is promised. You will not abandon me to the grave, writes David, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And we know Peter, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, makes this connection to Jesus, saying that David is saying of Jesus, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow my body to decay in the grave. And Jesus likely went to Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds you've been healed. As Jesus opened these Old Testament scriptures for these disciples, their eyes began to open. And this stranger established from scripture that all the suffering the Messiah endured in the past week was not an obstacle to his work. It didn't disqualify him as Messiah, but it gave all the more support for his claim to be Messiah because he suffered all that and it was predicted, though they hadn't seen it before. And they're starting to reevaluate Jesus' claim to be Messiah in light of these prophecies. And things start to line up in their mind and they're having these aha moments and their hearts begin to burn within. We need to pause and ask, why did this stranger spend all this time in the Old Testament explaining to these disciples from Scripture that the Messiah had to suffer. Wouldn't it have been a whole lot easier if Jesus just walked up and said, Hey guys, it's me. I've risen. Look at the holes in my hands. I'm Jesus. Remember, I said I'd rise. But he didn't. Why? Because he wants Scripture to be the basis of their faith. Scripture to be the means by which they know him. 
Jesus is soon going to ascend into heaven. And he's going to leave these disciples the task of proclaiming to the world about the Messiah. And how are they going to do that? By doing exactly what Jesus just did while he walked down the road to Emmaus with them. Matthew Henry says a golden thread of gospel grace runs through the whole web of the Old Testament. Christ is the best expositor of scripture. And even after his resurrection, he led people to know the mystery concerning himself Not by advancing new notions, but by showing how the scripture was fulfilled through him. And by turning them to earnest study of it. That's what he did with these disciples. And they start to understand. They haven't met the Messiah yet, but they're starting to get the fact that scripture prophesied what the Messiah experienced. You see, the reason that these disciples are divinely prevented from recognizing Jesus yet is again, so that they're not placing their foundation of their faith, they're not making the foundation of their faith a physical appearance or a personal private experience of Jesus, but scripture being the foundation of their faith. It's important for us to remember this because sometimes we can think, well, my faith would be so much stronger if I lived when Jesus lived and I could see him with my eyes, hear him with my ears. You know, if I could have Jesus appear to me in a dream or a vision, my faith would be so much stronger. If I could go to Palestine and retrace the footsteps of Jesus in the Holy Land and see the historic sites the Bible talks about, oh, that would really make me strong as a Christian. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to go to Palestine and retrace Jesus' footsteps and see the history. I'd love to do that someday. But that's not the foundation of our faith. And yes, Jesus might appear to people in dreams and visions still today. But that's not to add to revelation. Nor is that to be the foundation of someone's faith. But it's simply Jesus' way of saying to those who are hardened against scripture. Look, I am who the Bible says I am. And from there on, their faith is founded on his word. Jesus shows us That scripture has to be the foundation of our faith. When he tells that parable in Luke 16 about the rich man in hell and the poor beggar Lazarus. The rich man says, my family members uh, need to be warned. I don't want them to go to hell like I am. And can you send Lazarus back from the grave? If they get someone uh, rise from the dead and speak to them, then they'll repent and believe. What does Abraham say? Luke 16, 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't hear the word of God, neither will they be persuaded the one rises from the dead. Scriptures are sufficient. If you're not convinced by them, nothing will convince you. Well, these two disciples, their fires of their faith have been revived as the scriptures are explained. And now they draw near to their town, their home in Emmaus. And Jesus acts as if he's going to keep going. He's not play-acting or being deceitful. He's simply not going to invite himself in. He's not going to stay without invitation. He's testing their faith to see if they're hungry for more. And they are. They plead with him, stay with us. This is more than just Middle Eastern hospitality at work. They are hungry to learn more of what this stranger says because their hearts are burning within. And the stranger accepts the invitation. Point three, that brings us to the breaking of bread for them possible that Jesus enters into the home of this couple, Cleopas and his wife. Again, we're not sure, but could be a couple. 
And after a lengthy journey, these two disciples prepare a meal for the guest. And then it's time to eat. They've prepared the bread, but the guest grabs it, breaks the bread, gives thanks for it. He's the guest, not the host. That's weird. There's a role reversal here. And yet the disciples defer to this guest and allow him the honor of breaking the bread. And the moment he breaks the bread, all of a sudden everything clicks. This is Jesus. And he makes himself known to them. The language used in verse 30 contains four verbs that we find reflected in two other places in Luke's gospel. When Jesus feeds the crowd of 5,000, we hear him saying, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the multitude. Maybe that rang a bell in the minds of these disciples. And in connection with that, Jesus' words that I am the living bread, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And we also see these verbs reflected in Luke 22, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Luke wants us to draw a connection to this breaking of bread in these guests' home and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where he also reveals himself. Now, what is it that caused recognition for these disciples at the moment Jesus broke the bread? Was it the words Jesus spoke? Was it a familiar gesture or inflection in his voice? Was it seeing the nail marks for the first time because they were too downcast earlier to notice and busy preparing a meal? Was it all of the above? God probably used all of the above, but ultimately this was the moment Jesus made himself known to them when he broke the bread. And then he vanished. Poof. Gone. We learn something important here about how we meet Jesus. How Jesus meets us and how he makes himself known. Again, it's not through appearance that we can see with physical eyes and physical sight that he wants to make himself known. But it's through him appearing in the word and through him appearing in the sacrament where we see by the eyes of faith. Jesus said to Thomas, Because you have seen me with your physical eyes, you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who see me in the word as the spirit opens their eyes. Blessed are those who see me in the sacrament as I remind them that I gave my body and shed my blood for them. As the disciples realized this was the risen Jesus, their hearts burned with excitement and zeal, and they had to share that news. Verse 33 says, They got up that very hour right away and went back to Jerusalem. Two journeys in one day. From Jerusalem to Emmaus with heavy hearts, and from Emmaus back to Jerusalem with light and happy hearts. Hope revived. This was not an advisable time to travel. Evening had fallen. The road was dangerous. Bandits lurked. Roads were narrow. And yet, their hearts were filled with such joy, knowing the risen Jesus, 
that they were willing to take these measured risks to share the good news of the risen Savior with the other disciples. So as we conclude, we need to ask ourselves, are we hungry for the word of the Lord? Do you want to know the word and see Christ in the word? We all too easily have an appetite for YouTube and Netflix and whatever else and scrolling and... Do we have an appetite for the word of God? We've got appetites for our physical belly. Do we have an appetite for our spiritual belly? Eat from the word of God every day. And every Sunday, eat from the word as well by listening to the preaching. And also partake of the sacraments regularly. The Lord Jesus reveals himself through the sacrament. Spiritually, he is present when you partake of that sacrament, saying, as surely as you're holding this bread and as real as that is, that's how real my sacrifice on the cross was for you some 2,000 years ago. And as surely as you can taste that and it nourishes you, so surely have I forgiven you and you can know that and nourish your soul with that. My blood was shed to pay for your sins and there is no punishment left for you who trust in me. And a question maybe for us as church to consider is if the Lord's Supper is also a key means of how the risen Jesus reveals himself in the word. Is four times a year enough? We need the gospel regularly. We need the word. We need the sacraments. You and I need it every day. The gospel is not just the engine that gets the plane up and off the ground. No, the gospel is the engine that gets the plane up off the ground and keeps the plane in the air all our life long and finally lands us in glory. Or you can say the gospel is not just the starter motor that gets the engine of the car going. No, it's the engine that keeps it going all our life long until we reach our destination in glory. As fathers and mothers, as grandparents, as children... As employees and employers, as retired folks serving in whatever way, mothers, fathers, we fall short every day and we'll get weighed down with shame and guilt if we don't feed every day again on the fact that my Jesus paid for that shortcoming. So feed on Jesus. It's the only way to be saved. And if you've never eaten of Jesus by believing he died for your sins, do so today. And your heart will be light and joyful as you know the love of God in Christ. He'll remove that weight, that depression, that guilt. Restore honor where there is shame. And assure you, you're loved by him. And finally, are you eager to make the risen Christ known to others? And are you willing to take measured risks to make him known? Every one of us has a relationship with someone who's an unbeliever, whether it be at work or family or in the neighborhood. Are you willing to identify as a Christian to them and show them Christ when and where is fitting, even if it means being thought little of or worse? Romans 10 verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Spread that word, for that's how Christ creates 